All right, well, good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to take it out. We are, um, as a church, continuing our study in the book of Acts. And so this morning we find ourselves in Acts chapter 9. Specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 32 to 43. So if you have a copy of God's Word, there should be some scattered around there too. If you need one, you can reach underneath the seat in front of you and pull out a copy of the Bible. I'm going to read it in its entirety. And then I will uh, pray for us and we'll dive right in. Children are dismissed. If you didn't pick up on that, go. You're welcome to keep them in here too if you want. Either way, it's fine with us. All right, this is God's word. Acts 9, verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping, showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, knelt down, and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning and as we just reflected on, Lord, we are a needy people. And right now, I need you. We need you to show us Jesus from this text. That you would take this word, which is eternal and which is true, Lord, and we ask that you would write it on our hearts. Use it to shape us and to form us into the people that you have called us to be. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, many of you may know that uh, last couple of weeks, we've been working on the playground in the back. If you've been coming in these doors only, you don't know that there's a playground back there. And Faith Academy uses that every day for recess. And we've spent the last couple of years raising money. We raised over $110,000 to totally redo the playground. And so it's gonna, by God's grace, it's gonna get installed next week. Recess has been brutal the last couple of weeks, as you can probably imagine, with nothing to play on. And so hopefully that's gonna turn around this next week. And last couple of weeks, we have spent time preparing the ground for this new playground structure to be installed. One of the volunteers who's really um, been a point person for this project is a man by the name of Tom Yoder. Some of you may know Tom Yoder. He's an incredibly kind and gracious man. I believe he attends Grace Church. And when I first met with him this past spring to begin to plan uh, how we were going to do this, Tom showed up and we were talking in my office and went outside and I saw Tom's pickup truck. Tom drives a 1982 Chevy. 
There it is. If you know Tom, you've probably seen him drive this car. It is amazing. It's beautiful. He's the original owner of this vehicle. It's an awesome, awesome truck. And it's, it's been his truck for, you know, obviously since 1982. It's a beautiful truck. He keeps it in, in great condition, takes tremendous care of the truck. It's immaculate. It's the type of truck that most people would tuck away in a garage. Maybe take out on a Sunday afternoon and, you know, drive around town or, or perhaps enlist it in a car show even and have it there. It's just, it's stunning. It's a beautiful truck. But what's most impressive about Tom's truck and what struck me as I saw it, not just how clean it is, but that this is his regular daily driver. Tom drives it all the time. Not only is this truck his regular daily driver, it's also a truck that he puts to work. When he showed up, when we began to break ground, Tom had, you can show the next picture, had a, a trailer hooked up to it. It's got a fifth wheel. Is that what you call that when it hooks in the middle? Is that right, Jeremy, a fifth wheel? You know, does anybody know? Show me the head is, okay. He's got a fifth wheel hitch. He's got a trailer. And on the trailer, he towed up this massive John Deere tractor that he used to destroy the ground, right? And move dirt around. He hauled bricks in it. I mean, this truck is a classic. It's an immaculate condition. It's impressive enough that it still works. It's more impressive that he puts it to work. This morning, as we consider together Acts chapter nine, what we're gonna see together is a very simple lesson. And it's this. Jesus still works. Jesus still works. He is not simply a historical artifact. Our understanding of Jesus and our appreciation and our affection for him is not simply based on a distant memory of what Jesus could do. He's not just for show. He's not asking us this morning to place him on a shelf or to tuck him away in a garage and to preserve a memory of what he once did. Because you see, folks, Jesus is still at work. His power is still able to turn things around. He broke into our world some 2,000 years ago and has been breaking into lives and transforming them ever since. He's still in the business of crashing into our realities and turning everything around. So we can therefore not only put our hope in him, but what Acts 9, 32 to 43 says is that we can also join him in his supernatural, surprising work. This morning, Jesus is giving us keys to the Chevy. And he's saying, let's ride. So let's do it. First point, the work of Jesus Continues. We see this throughout the book of Acts. We see this especially here in Acts chapter 9. The work of Jesus 
continues. There's awesome stuff that we see happening here in these verses this morning. And as we consider these stories, it's very clear that it is Jesus who is at work. Look at the first story in verses 32 to 35. We see that the, the story jumps back. Remember, we've been following the conversion of Paul earlier in chapter nine. It goes back to Peter, who we haven't really heard from since chapter eight. And in the story, he's traveling throughout Judea. He comes to Lydda, which is a small town about 45 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And while he's in the town, he comes across a man who's been paralyzed for eight years. Been paralyzed for eight years. We don't know if this man was a follower of Jesus, but what we do know is that he was a significant man in the community. He was known throughout. In verse 34, Luke makes the point. It's abundantly clear that Jesus is the one who healed Aeneas. It's abundantly clear. Upon encountering the bedridden man, Peter simply says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. It can't get more obvious. Jesus is the one who's doing the healing. It is the power of Jesus and the power of Jesus alone that gives this man a completely new reality. It's bad enough that he had been bedridden, suffering for some form of paralysis. Maybe some of us can relate. It's bad enough that he was paralyzed in some way. But what made it even worse is that in this first century remote village, it would have been essentially a death sentence for this man. His reality upon a simple phrase is completely turned around. New possibilities, new opportunities, a new path in life. Jesus' healing power breaks into this man's life and turns it on its head. In the second story, we see a, very, see a very similar thing happen. Verses 36 to 43. Peter continues on from Lydda into Joppa, which is a distinctly Greek city. He's moving deeper and deeper into Gentile territory, non-Jewish territory. Having heard of Peter's arrival in the town, certain disciples seek him out. They, go to, they send for help. They sent for help. They asked Peter to come. Their beloved sister in Christ, Tabitha, had fallen ill and she'd passed away. The community of God is devastated by this. This is a beloved woman in the church. We're told that she's full of good works and acts of charity. She's known and she's beloved. And as a result of losing her, the complete community is devastated. We see that the preparation and the care for her body was unusual at this time. It shows how much that she meant to these people. Maybe they sent for Peter so he could come and bless her body. Maybe they sent for Peter so, that, so he could come and comfort them or, or just pay his respects. Or maybe they had hoped that Jesus might raise her from the dead. Perhaps they heard what Peter had done to Aeneas and Lydda. And hearing that, that Jesus did through Peter, they were given hope that maybe, just maybe, if Peter came, things could turn around. Maybe Jesus could intervene. And, and this hope directed their behavior. So they avoided burial. They, they placed her in an upper room. They send for help. The, the hope that they had that maybe there was a possibility that things didn't have to stay this way actually determined the way that they behaved. And to their joy, we're told that she was brought back to life. Told in verse 39, Peter knelt down and prayed. 
See, he recognized that for him to offer anything, there was a power that would have to come from outside of him. He needed Jesus to heal her. And upon commanding her, she opened her eyes, stood on her feet. You could just imagine the shock and the joy that filled her friends. It's almost unbelievable. Folks, as we consider these two stories, my prayer is that we, as God's people, you would be encouraged this morning. If this is true, if Jesus' life-healing and life-giving power is still at work today, what does that mean for us? What does it mean for you? Jesus is just as willing, he's just as able to break into our lives, whatever they might look like, whatever circumstances we might face, and apply his transforming power. If that is true, there are massive implications for our life. There are no shortage of possibilities We can walk through this life with an open-ended expectancy in our relationships, in our family, in our work, in our ministry, believing in the life, the living, sovereign, working Jesus means every area of our life is accompanied by an unlimited possibility because Jesus still works. The bad circumstances, the painful realities that we face, some of us, every single day. The challenging situations around us. Every single one of them is within the reach of a still working, still living Jesus, none of them are outside of his reach. Granted, the timing may not be what we expect or the way it looks may not be what we expect, but Jesus is still in the business of advancing his kingdom and breathing life into the dead, shining light into the darkest corners of this world. This is the point of the book of Acts. what Jesus wants us to learn about the life that he's called us to, Jesus is alive. Jesus is in charge and he regularly and consistently butts in to our lives and realities and changes things around. Now, this is a wonderful message. It is. Just even thinking, reading this last Sunday night, getting prepared for this week, I'm like, let me preach this now. If this is true, what does it mean for me and this tough stuff that I have to deal with every day? If it's true, what does it mean for you? But here's the deal. I'm not hardwired in a way that thinks of endless possibilities in the face of tremendous adversity. Maybe you can relate. One of the most debilitating feelings that we can wrestle with in life is the feeling that things can't turn around. Leaves us feeling, if you're just normal, 
defeated and deflated in life. We find ourselves sounding like, I'm going to date myself here a little bit, Jack Nicholson in that romantic comedy asking ourselves, is this as good as it gets? And then turning to dread, thinking maybe, just maybe it is. Thinking about our circumstances, our challenges, our sufferings, and believing this is the way it's going to be. Nothing can change. My family's just gonna be like this. The workplace is just gonna be like this. Our society and the world around us, this is just the way it's going to be. The message of Acts is given to us as a regular reminder that that isn't true. Jesus is not dead. Jesus is not distant. Jesus is not silent. Jesus is not powerless. He is not cowering in a corner afraid of the things that plague our world. Rather, Jesus is waltzing through this world today, surprising people left and right, turning lives around one after the other. See it over and over and over in our study of the book of Acts. The church is facing persecution. They are scattering throughout the region. They are facing uncertainties. Imagine how they must have felt. There's no legal protection. The power structures of the day, legal, religious, they're all caving in on them. They're culturally out of place. The Romans are against them. The religious authorities are against them. Everybody's against them. And yet, what we see is that Jesus is full of surprises. And he's turning things around. Well, we just considered last week in the life of Saul. He takes a key player in the persecution of his people, turns him in a totally opposite direction on the Damascus road, and uses him as a key instrument to advance his mission and purposes in the world. Jesus is still alive. He's still at work. His work continues today. Point number two. The work of Jesus continues through people like us. Go ahead and turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor, the work of Jesus continues through people like you. Okay, very good. Some participation. I like it. The work of Jesus. You're apparently not as excited about this text as I am. Come on, this is amazing. This is the best news that you've probably heard all week. It's the best news I've heard all week. And as good as it is, it just gets better. Jesus not only allows us to be the beneficiaries of his healing and life-giving work, he invites us, you and me, to participate in it. Peter was the vessel through which Jesus worked. While it's Jesus who's clearly doing the work, he's choosing to work through a willing, available, obedient follower of his by the name of Peter. Notice that as a disciple of Jesus, Peter's ministry, it looks a lot like Jesus's ministry. It's very similar. Peter's simply doing what he saw Jesus do, faithfully ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ in both word and in deed. These, these stories sound similar to stories that we encounter in the gospel of Jesus. John chapter five, 
familiar with that story? When Jesus healed the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda, he'd been paralyzed, this man, for some 38 years, lying at the pool, waiting, hoping for a chance to get into the water. Jesus encounters him and simply speaks a word. Get up, take your bed, and walk. Sounds a lot like what Peter said to Ananias. If Peter heard and saw this miracle, I don't know, but it's, it's so similar to the ministry that Jesus performed when he was here. In John 11, we know that Jesus brings Lazarus back to life from the dead after being dead for four days. It's a similar situation here where Peter encounters a dead person and brings her back to life through the power of Jesus. Peter's ministry looks like Jesus's ministry. And this is what we'll see throughout the book of Acts in the life of Peter. You'll see it in the life of Paul and all the apostles. It's a characteristic feature of apostolic ministry. They are proclaiming the word of Jesus. They are proclaiming the gospel. We saw last week when Paul's life instantly got turned around, when he was Saul and got turned around on the Damascus Road, he immediately began to preach and herald the good news of Jesus. The word of God was proclaimed. It was preached throughout the region. We see him over and over again, sermon after sermon throughout the book of Acts, preaching God's word. And we'll see here again in Acts chapter nine and throughout the book of Acts, we will see that his work is not just being proclaimed, it's also being demonstrated through the healings and the miracles that the apostles are performing. The word is powerful. God's word is powerful in word and in deed. They're following Jesus's example. Some of you might be familiar with the story of Moses in the Old Testament, specifically how God used a staff in the hand of Moses. I don't know if you're familiar with the story or not, but Francis Schaeffer is super helpful as he talks about this, as we consider this idea of being used by God. God spoke to Moses, if you remember, from a burning bush. He told him to confront Pharaoh the greatest power of his day. If you remember Moses' response, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring your people out of Egypt? He had objection after objection. They won't believe me. They won't listen to me. They won't follow me. God said to Moses, as he was making excuses, asked him a question. He said, what is that in your hand? It was a shepherd's rod, a stick of wood. Remember, at this point, Moses had been in the wilderness for some 40 years. Who knows how long he would have had this particular dead piece of wood in his hand as his shepherd's rod. But God commands him to throw it on the ground, if you remember how the story goes. And Moses listens. He does just as God says, and it turns into a serpent. And then God commands him to pick it up from its tail, and he listens, and it becomes his rod, his staff. Again, God would go on to tell Moses to go to Egypt and to meet Pharaoh with the rod in his hand. Moses did. Listen to what he tells him in verse 20 of chapter four. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. It's interesting that he says, it's the staff of God. It goes from being the staff of Moses to the staff of of God. And it's this is the secret which allows us to understand everything that would follow in the great Exodus and in Moses' story with the Israelites. This is the rod that Aaron would throw on the ground in front of Pharaoh. The magicians of Egypt would follow suit, but it was a staff of God that would swallow them up. 
It wasn't a victory of Moses and Aaron over Pharaoh, but rather it was a victory of Moses' God over Pharaoh's God. As you read throughout the story, you see use after use. He used the rod to strike the Nile, turning the water into blood. The, the plagues that would follow one after another, they came from the hand of Moses, stretched out with a hand, one hand of his rod high up in the air. Destruction and judgment from a mere stick of dead wood in his hand. During the Exodus, they're hotly pursued, pursued by the Egyptians. Israelites thinking, this is it. God says, why are you crying? God tells Moses to lift his, his rod up and to stretch his hand over the waters. And immediately the Red Sea parts and the Israelites have a way through. The rod of judgment, as the story goes on, would, have, would essentially, eventually become a rod of supply to the people who are in desperate need of water. By it, Moses strikes a rock and water comes out and, and provides water for God's people, life-giving water. Over and over again, 40 years in the wilderness. If Moses would have been a shepherd for 40 years before this, this there's a potential that this particular dead piece of wood had been in his hand for the last 80 years. It's dead. It's a stick of wood. Consider the mighty ways God used a stick of wood. An old, dead piece of wood. Francis Schaeffer suggests that God so used a stick of wood would become a banner cry for each of us. Each of us. Though we are limited, listen to what he says, though we are limited and weak in talent, physical energy, psychological strength, we are not less than a stick of wood. But as the rod of Moses had become the rod of God, so that which is me must become the me of God. Then we can become useful in God's hands. The, the imagery of a, a stick of wood in the hand of Moses is similar to us in the hand of God. Imagine what he can do if we would simply consecrate our lives to him. This is the emphasis in scripture that much can come from little if that little is consecrated by God. That we would be like a stick of wood willing, available, useful to God. Third point, this one might sound familiar. Our work, Jesus still works. He specifically works through his people. And our work is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. As you study through the book of Acts, this study forces us to think about the reality of the miraculous. Christian community has long been divided over this topic. What do we do with the miraculous? What do we do with the miracles that we discover and encounter in the Bible? Do these gifts still exist? Or were they just given for a time? I suspect that there are many in this room today who probably divide over that topic. But regardless of where you stand, one thing is clear. God st is still at work in our creation. He is still intervening in ways that can only be described as miraculous. So therefore, we can still ask God 
to interrupt our lives. That we can ask him to do what is necessary to expand his kingdom, to do what is necessary to draw attention to Jesus. Ask him to help us in our needs, whatever they might be. Why? Because we believe God will show up. This is what he does. He continues to intervene into creation. We can believe that God can and does intervene, that he will hear our prayers, while also recognizing that at the end of the day, these miracles don't change hearts. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ changes hearts. In Romans chapter 1, 16, Paul says it's the gospel that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's the gospel that changes people's lives, that redirects them. And our job as a result is to not cry out for another miracle, but rather to cry out that God would glorify himself as we pursue the mission he's called us to. And if he uses miracles to do it, then so be it. Are we gonna be useful, willing, available vessels that he will work through in any way? In verse 35, it says, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to him. My Bible, I have that phrase underlined, and they turned to him. The, the healing of Aeneas had a purpose, and it was not to make a big deal about Peter. While the paralytic man became healed and his life was transformed, the purpose transcends even Aeneas. Even his circumstances, it's so much larger. The hearts of men and women are awakened to the reality of a living Jesus still at work in the creation. And his life-giving power, eyes are opened. Hearts are turned, not to Peter, but to Jesus. We see the exact same thing happen in verses 41 and 42 of the second story and he gave her his hand and, and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all of Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. Another phrase that I have underlined in my Bible. And many believed in the Lord. The exact same effect. Both times that Jesus' power is unleashed through Peter. We see a life redirected and God glorified. And that should be what we long to see God do through us as well. Him interrupting other people's realities through us for his glory, not ours. Tabitha is the beneficiary of Jesus's surprising life-giving power. Can you imagine how tempting it would be to, 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 to raise her up or to raise Peter up. But it says they believed in the Lord. It was clear who did the work and therefore it was clear who should get the glory. Jesus is at work performing the miraculous so that his name can be known. So many will believe Closing, I just want to ask you two questions this morning. Question number one. What areas of your life do you desperately need Jesus to intervene? What areas of your life do you need things to turn around? Maybe you've cried 
your share of tears. Maybe you've asked for help over and over and over again. You've sought wisdom from others. You've read all the right books. You've even gone to the right specialist. And you find yourself this morning on the verge of giving up hope, thinking maybe this is just as good as it gets. And I just need to get used to it. That's you. Jesus, this morning, is coming to you. And he's gently reminding you, encouraging you, something that you might have forgotten. He's still alive. And he is still at work. And if you find yourself sort of at the end of yourself, the good news is that is precisely the soil where God's work begins. Where you recognize you've done everything you can do. And it's simply out of your hands. Wonderful news is you get to trust Jesus, whose power, while yours is limited, his is not. Ask God today. You know, the reality is, for some of us, maybe who've been coming here every Sunday, maybe we've been a follower of Jesus for many, many years, and we find ourselves in that place where we figured, it's just gonna be like this. The hard truth is, that is a functional form of atheism. You've given up hope that God is still alive and at work. And again, it may not look like you think, may not happen. I mean, the man at Bethesda was a paralytic for 38 years. 38 years. What areas of your life do you need to hand over to Jesus and ask him to surprise you? Secondly, for some of us this morning, we're here today, and this is the reminder that we need, that if God can work through a common, uneducated fisherman like Peter, if God can work through a dead stick of wood, then maybe he can use me. Maybe he can use me to advance his purposes, extend his kingdom in our world, in our community, in our neighborhood. Maybe, just maybe, there are circumstances around us that you find yourself in that you are reminded of every time you turn on the news at night or open the newspaper in the morning. Maybe there's frustration that's built up inside of you over things like injustice or growing hostility towards the things of God. I wanna suggest to you that maybe God wants to use your frustration with those circumstances to actually turn you into a person of action who's not just expecting to see it happen, but who says, give me the keys to the Chevy. I wanna go for a ride. Maybe God wants to use you to turn things around in your world and in our world. Maybe, just maybe. Let's be the type of church, Parkview East, that never forgets that Jesus still works be hopeful people with a common expectation to be surprised by how he shows up.
Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for this really wonderful reminder that you're a God who is busy at work. I pray that you would give us as your people not just the faith to believe, but also eyes that see. Help us not be fatalistic in our view of our lives and the world, but recognize that as followers of Jesus, every day we wake up, we can say that our best days are ahead. (laughs) It's true, Lord. If we're with you, you offer yourself to us and one day we will be in complete joy as we stand in your presence. Lord, your, your purposes will be accomplished. And Lord, what an amazing privilege that you invite us in, that you share those blessings with us and you invite us in to participate in the very work that you are doing right now. Help us to be like Peter, willing, available, ready, and used by God. Ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.